I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we are interpreting Romans. Our text is Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. At the end of Romans chapter 2, Paul rejects the religious presumption that identifying as a Jew and participating in Jewish rituals such as circumcision will make a person acceptable to the court of God on the day of judgment. And we should be careful not to read back into this any kind of anti-Jewish sentiment. Paul targets the Jew as the person with the best possible religious argument. The Jews truly have received promises from God and truly receive ritual practices from God. Paul is not looking down on the Jew. He's saying that even though, even though you can claim to be an actual member of God's people and to have followed God's ceremonial law, you still do not stand before God on that basis. Your religious acts do not make up for your sin. The scale of justice still tilts guilty. But I'm a Jew. That doesn't matter in this court. But I'm a Baptist. Doesn't matter. I'm Roman Catholic. Doesn't matter. I'm Methodist, Orthodox, Brethren, Bible Church, Presbyterian, Anglican, non-denominational, undenominational, free spirit. It doesn't matter. Your religious identity does not count a whit in this court. Have you or have you not consistently and thoroughly lived out the moral will of God in your life? Does this court have any righteous claim that can be brought against you? That's the question of justice. But that doesn't seem fair. It may make sense to reject the pagan or the Hindu or the Muslim, but to reject the Jew or the Christian whose circumcision or baptism and communion comes from the word of God, that doesn't seem right. Paul is pausing here at the beginning of chapter 3 to entertain two objections against his prosecution of the case so far. And the first objection in chapter 3-1, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the benefit of circumcision contains a deep emotional complaint that is best understood when we put ourselves into the place of the Jew in Paul's argument. This is about religious identity. And before we go further in the text, let's try to enter personally into the problem Paul is addressing. You have a religious identity. As you've grown up and developed your understanding of God and how to relate to him, certain values and memories and presuppositions have become part of who you are. So whether you've embraced your childhood exposure to religion or rebelled against that early teaching, whether you're a traditionalist or a free spirit, whether you've stayed consistent in your path or have experienced a dramatic conversion, whatever the case, you have a religious identity and you have religious values that are deep inside of you. You have a way of approaching God that feels right to you. You feel secure with God or insecure with God because of how you view God and how you view yourself. You have your own story. I have my own story. And I'm going to share a bit of my story by way of example. I grew up in the Moravian Church, a Protestant denomination that came before the Protestant Reformation. The Moravians came from Moravia, which is part of the Czech Republic. The Moravians passed through a renewal in Germany before coming to America. So there's both a, a Czech and a German background. Moravian traditions have settled deep in my soul. I smell beeswax candles at Christmas time. A brass band makes me think of Easter sunrise service. And I catch myself whistling tunes like Jesus makes my heart rejoice and Christ the Lord, the Lord most glorious. Green mountains take me back to summer camp. And ginger cookies never live up to the paper thin Moravian cookies we got at Grandmother and Granddaddy's house. In college, I began to get interested in my roots. Being the church archivist, Granddaddy gave me access to old dusty books that contain the story of Moravian missions. 
and our history stretched back past Martin Luther to the Slavic reformer Jan Hus martyred in 1415 for holding up the Bible as the Christian's highest authority and for claiming the right to preach to the Czech people in their heart language. And when the Moravians came to Germany in the 1700s, God did an amazing work in that small community, and he sent missionaries through Europe to Greenland, Africa, the Caribbean, even Palestine. More important to me was the arrival of my great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather who joined the community of believers at Friedland Moravian Church in North Carolina, where I grew up going to church. And that was 250 years ago. So I, I have this religious heritage and this experience that's part of who I am. And I want to believe it matters. I used to think that 250 years was a long religious heritage. You know, that was, and in America it certainly is, but that was before I moved to Croatia. Living in Croatia, I walked by buildings that are 250 years old, and their families who claim to have been Roman Catholic for a thousand years, you know, easily outdistancing my heritage. And they have stories of holding on to their faith through war and persecution. For so many to be Croatian is to be Catholic. You know, so their religious identity is deeply intertwined with their culture and ethnic and political identity. That's getting closer to Paul's case with the Jew. Their culture outdoes Protestant and Catholic and Orthodox. They claim a heritage that goes 4,000 years back to Abraham. They've suffered more than any through war and persecution. Theirs are the prophets. Even the Christian writers of the New Testament were Jews. In Paul's day, to be a Jew was a religious statement intertwined with culture, ethnicity, and politics. And yet here, Paul argues that it just does not matter in the courtroom of God. doesn't matter if you're a Jew. His point is not that it doesn't matter just for the Jew. It doesn't matter for the Jew or whatever identity you claim. Whether your heritage is as old as Abraham or whether you were the first in your family to take the road you're on, Paul would strip you of all your religious dress. All your sacraments and ordinances, your baptism, your Lord's Supper, your Christmas and Easter celebrations, your confirmation, your Bible reading, your prayer, your fasting, all your rituals and your self-definition, traditionalist, conservative, moderate, free spirit, progressive, future-oriented, whether you're of Moses, of Peter, of Paul, however you define yourself, that too will be stripped away. Paul's insistence that we will be judged in the moral court of God based on our own thoughts, our own words, and our own deeds takes us back to the Garden of Eden, where the only question that counts are, why are you hiding, and what have you done? No matter what religious identity and traditions we want to use to cover our nakedness, no matter what bush we try to hide behind, God sees. God sees through to the heart. King David acknowledged, you desire truth in the innermost being. And in the hidden part, you will make me no wisdom. I cannot package myself in such a way that I come out looking good to God. He sees me truly, exactly as I am. We are left with this at the end of chapter 2. Paul's condemned the pagan man, the moral man, and the religious man. He pauses now to raise these two objections that regularly come against the gospel. If religion does not suffice in the court of God, what about the Jew? And secondly, what about sin? If no religion, are we free to sin? So we're going to address each objection in turn, starting with what about the Jew in chapter 3, 1 through 4. So let's read that. Romans 3, 1 through 4. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. 
What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Paul, if religion does not matter, if we stand naked before God, then what's the point? Why did God call Abraham in the first place and promise a son and save Israel from Egypt and make them a nation? Why did God give them circumcision and command ritual obedience? That's the objection. And the objection can be raised both emotionally and theologically. Emotionally, Paul's presentation of the gospel attacks our sense of religious identity. And that's what I've been trying to get in setting this up, is help us recognize that this this is deep in us. We feel this. So I gave you a bit of my story. Here's another story. I once met a student who'd switched from the University of Zagreb to the University of Split, where I was living. He originally came from the coast of Croatia. Moving to Zagreb, he had gotten into a party crowd and drinking some drugs, not much studying. So he moved to Split to start over. But the emptiness did not go away. So one night he called out to God, If you exist, let me know who you are. The next day he met some friends that I had set up in an English class, and they went to coffee with him, and he he heard he could have a personal relationship with Jesus. He prayed to God that night, and his life was changed. He was one of those who experienced a dramatic transformation from being empty and lost to experiencing joy and purpose. He couldn't get enough of the Bible. He spent his time with Jesus. The partying stopped. No more drinking, no more drugs. He started to study and to do well in college. So his parents took him out of the University of Split. See, there, there was this island near his home with a cross on it, and he would go there to pray, and he, his parents noticed the difference. He had grown up Roman Catholic, but he'd never prayed or read the Bible before. Now he could not stop talking about Jesus. And they became afraid that he was losing his identity, so they took him out of university again. My friend from Split called him, and his mom answered the phone, and she said, Look, I know you're a good person. I know you helped my son stop drugs and get his life together. But he was born a Catholic, raised a Catholic, he will die a Catholic. Don't ever call him again. See, she was feeling this deep threat towards identity, and it was that was so important to her that she couldn't see that her son was beginning to develop a true relationship with Jesus Christ. The primary issue is not about being Roman Catholic, about being Jewish, about being Protestant. The issue is about knowing Jesus, walking with Jesus, trusting in Jesus. Sometimes our religion is so deeply a part of who we are that we can't hear the voice of Jesus calling, knocking on the door. We're afraid to listen, afraid of what we might lose. So this this objection is not rational, but even more powerfully, it's deeply emotional. Who are you, Paul, to say it doesn't matter? If we're Jewish or circumcised, you are a traitor to the faith. You've given up on your own people. You've thrown away precious tradition, forged through centuries of suffering. What do you mean there's no advantage in being a Jew who's circumcised? You are crazy, Paul. You are an outcast. So Paul, yeah, he experienced this kind of emotional response. Like for an example, look at Acts chapter 17. Paul was pleasantly received by Jews in the synagogue of Thessalonica. Initially, his teaching about Jesus was given a hearing. And some joined him, but when it became clear that the message was also for non-Jews, that Paul was, was willing to talk to uncircumcised Gentiles, a powerful emotional backlash followed and Paul was driven from the city. Their identity as the special people of God had been threatened. But Paul's proclamation of the gospel strips away the presuppositions of our moral and religious identity. We are not safe in who we have defined ourselves to be. So the objection of verse 1 
can also be understood rationally or theologically. There is a rational problem with Paul's gospel message. God really did make special promises to the Jewish people. But now, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. What name has God called his people? O Jacob, O Israel. God knows their name. He gave them the name Jew. He made promises to Abraham and to Moses and to David. You may stumble, you may suffer, you may be exiled, but you are mine, O Israel. I will not forsake you. I will bring you back. You are my people. I am your God. If we simply ignore and wipe away all significance of being a Jew and the value of Jewish ritual, then the old covenant becomes very confusing. It makes no sense. God took those things very seriously. Paul is not rejecting the law, the writings, the prophets. Paul carefully communicates both the discontinuity and continuity inherent in moving from the Old Covenant to the New. Claiming that the birthright of the Jew and holding to all the traditions will not save you from a just and holy judge on the day of judgment. But that's not the same thing as saying that there is no value in the name Jew and the rituals instituted by God. So what is the advantage of being a circumcised Jew? Verse 2, great in every respect. The very first advantage is that the Jew has been entrusted with the oracles of God. Jews are not wrong to claim access to the will of God. They're not wrong to claim to be a light to those who are in darkness. The word of God is a precious, precious possession, enabling the Jew who receives it to see the world as it really is, to see God and people and relationships from God's own perspective. And that's all that Paul has to say on this right now, which is a bit disappointing, really. You know, it's a solid objection that he's being asked. The Old Covenant emphasizes the value of being a Jew and performing circumcision, but Paul claims it doesn't help on the Day of Judgment. Okay, unpack that for us, Paul. But he doesn't unpack it. Instead, he gives us what I call the dad answer. It's short, a little confusing, and definitely unsatisfying. Paul starts with, first of all. Well, what what do you expect to come after, first of all? Well, at some point, we should have a, and second, and third, You know, Paul starts a list and he never finishes. So what's going on here? Is Paul distracted? Did a squirrel just run across the lawn? Does he not know how to answer the question? Is he frustrated that anyone would dare to raise a point against his gospel? No, no, and no. That's that's not what's going on. When we study the rest of the letter to the Romans, we find out that Paul gives a detailed answer to this question. The whole of chapters 9 through 11 answer the question, what about the Jews? Paul's an experienced evangelist. He knows that his presentation raises problems for people listening to him. He acknowledges the problem, and he goes ahead and gives a short answer to show that he's not avoiding the question. But he needs to finish the basic message of the gospel before he can turn to a new topic, especially in this case, because understanding the foundational truth of the gospel is necessary to answer the question, what about the Jews? The short answer here is that even though simply being a Jew does not justify a person in the court of God, there are great advantages like the possession of the word of God. Furthermore, in verse 3, God's faithfulness to his promises will not be overturned simply because some Jews did not believe. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? The theological objection argues that Paul's gospel makes God out to be unfaithful to his promises to the Jews. And Paul responds, lack of belief by some will not overrule God's faithfulness. And he emphasizes, he's emphatic, may it never be. 
If Paul's version of the gospel is correct, then it will show God to be true, even if every person claiming to be a member of his people turns out to be a liar and a hypocrite. In verse 4, it's God who's on trial and God who is justified. The God of Paul's gospel is judged for not giving appropriate value to religious identity and ceremony. He is judged as an unjust judge or as a breaker of promises. That's why Paul's asserting so emphatically, may it never be that God would be unfaithful or break his promises. Paul is refuting the claim that his gospel shows God to be unjust, arguing that in fact, his gospel is the only way to show God as just. Let God be found true that he might be justified in his words and prevail when he is judged. The gospel is necessary to reveal the righteousness of God in his plan of salvation. It is necessary to help us understand his promises to the Jews, and not only to the Jews, but also to the Christian church. Paul will address the question of God's faithfulness to his people in chapters 9 through 11. For now, he wants to mention another objection, and then he's going to get back to his gospel presentation. So let's move on to the second objection. What about sin? So this is Romans 3, 5 through 8. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. So we might find the second objection a little convoluted, but it is an objection that comes against the gospel regularly in various forms. This objection begins by claiming that our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God. What unrighteousness is Paul referring to? Well, in the context, it's the unrighteousness of the religious person who depends on outward identity and ritual while not living up to their own creed. God sees through religious hypocrisy and is and is shown to be righteous in his judgment of religious man. But if God knows that man falls short, and man's falling short only affirms the righteousness of God, then why does God punish man for falling short? Our sin reveals his righteous glory, therefore our sin adds to his praise. God is glorified by our sin, so it's wrong for him to punish us. Sophistry is a smart-sounding argument that twists words around to deceive. Or it's the attempt to win an argument through clever but false reasoning. This is sophistry. The objection is a twisting of Paul's language from the beginning of his gospel presentation back in chapter 1. Paul had declared that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. That's in 117. God also reveals his righteousness in his wrath against sinful man. That's in 118. So this objection twists that around to suggest that the sinfulness of man reveals God's righteousness, and so God is unjust to inflict the punishment of his wrath since the end result of our sin is glory to God. So if you follow that, the basic idea is we sin, that shows God to be right, God receives glory. If God receives glory through our action, then he's not just in punishing us. Paul's pretty quick to denounce the argument using his favorite emphatic phrase again in verse 6. May it never be. The whole idea of judgment would be lost if somehow our sin is added up as a positive. One thing that's quite clear in the Bible from the Garden of Eden all the way to the New Jerusalem 
is that God judges sin. A just God must judge sin. Our just God does judge sin. Verse 7 and 8 repeat the sophistry. If through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? The gospel radically affirms that the law cannot save because people cannot live up to the law. Opponents to the gospel hear that the law cannot save, and in their minds they twist that assertion, either purposefully or mistakenly, to say that these Christians oppose living the moral life exhorted by the law. If Christians reject salvation by law, then Christians must be lawless. And this, this again, is a valid objection. If you take away the law as the standard that justifies, then what motive is there for a righteous living? That's a significant challenge to the gospel. The gospel is going to have to answer that. And to be fair, a lot of Christians have added fuel to the fire. If grace means we can live however we want in our behavior towards others, in our business practices, in our sexuality, then it looks like the gospel declares people righteous while promoting unrighteous living. To religious outsiders looking in, it sounds like we're saying, let us do evil that good may come. Paul rejects the logic. He concludes that the condemnation of the unrighteous is just. But again, he gives us an unsatisfyingly short answer to an important question. And it doesn't mean that Paul does not recognize our need for better understanding here. This is this is critical, and he's going to come back to this objection with a long, in-depth answer in chapters 5 through 8. For now, in regard to both of these objections, Paul goes ahead and gives us his short answer. You know, he's a good evangelist. He knows he's got to finish the basic presentation of the gospel before he answers these more difficult questions. So he, he's not going to leave us in doubt about his conclusions, but he does defer the longer answer until he's completed his initial gospel presentation. Is God unfaithful in his promise to the Jews? May it never be. More on that later in Romans 9-11. through 11. Does the gospel of grace promote sin? May it never be. More on that later in Romans 5-8. through 8. But first, let's finish with the indictment of all men, so that we can move on to the salvation that's been made available to all men. Let's establish the gospel, and then we will come back to these two important issues. The separation of these issues is quite important for us. There's a lot of confusion or lack of clarity among Bible-believing Christians over the role of good works in our lives as believers. It's a confusion of the roles of law and grace, and it's one of the major motivations for carefully walking through the whole of Paul's gospel presentation in Romans to understand how the gospel saves and to understand how the gospel empowers us for life, we need clarity on the issues of law and grace. Paul's refusal to answer these two questions about the Jews and about sin at this stage in his presentation indicates how foundational chapters 1 through 4 are to understanding the gospel. This is basic arithmetic. We cannot move on to higher mathematics until we have absolute clarity regarding the foundational truths. So here in the conclusion of this lesson, I'm, I'm going to give you two questions. Understanding the gospel answer to these two questions will enable you to frame the issues correctly. I'm not going to give you the gospel answer to these questions, not yet. We'll let Paul do that in his time. For now, it is key just to recognize which question we are dealing with. One reason our thinking gets muddled on law and grace is that we're not clear on the question that we're trying to answer. So I call these two questions the two questions of covenant. The biblical history shows that God chose to relate to his people from Adam through Jesus using the concept of covenant. And in the ancient Near East, the context of Abraham and Moses and David 
the nations surrounding Israel used covenant treaties to define their relationships with one another. So a great king would make a covenant with a vassal people to define the basis of their relationship and the expectations he had in that relationship. So God used this cultural idea of covenant to help people understand their relationship with him. So he made special covenants with Abraham, with Moses, with David, and of course with Jesus in the new covenant. And we're not going to worry about the details right now of the covenants. We're just thinking about the big picture. So there are two essential questions to covenant. Question number one is, what makes me acceptable to be in relationship with God? And we can ask that question slightly different, keeping in mind our current moral and legal context of Romans. So Paul is talking about justification before the court of God. So we could ask question number one like this. What makes me righteous before God? That's the question of acceptability before a holy God. What makes me acceptable or righteous before God so that I might have a covenant relationship with him? That's the first question of covenant. A lot of confusion about the gospel of Jesus Christ has to do with the role of grace and the role of law. So let's apply to the first covenant, law and grace. What role does grace play in making me acceptable to be in relationship with God? And what role does law play in making me acceptable to be in relationship with God? And here, to to define terms, here, by grace, I mean that which is completely dependent on God. So what does God do for me that I simply receive as a gift of grace? And by law, I do not mean here the whole of the Torah. So it's not the whole of the first five books of the Bible, but rather the stipulations of covenant, the do's and the don'ts. So these could be the moral do's and don'ts, like do not steal, do not lie, love your neighbor, show hospitality. These are easy to find in the Bible. They're through the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we can also include in these do's and don'ts religious um, laws and, and rituals or behaviors. So do not eat shrimp, do read your Bible, do pray, do not work on the Sabbath, and so on. So essentially, grace is what God does for us, and law is what we do ourselves. So here's the question for you to answer before our next lesson. What makes you acceptable to be in relationship with God? And you don't need to answer this precisely. Just make an estimate and use percentages. What percentage is the first question of covenant answered by grace? And what percentage is answered by law? So if it depends half on God and half on you, then your answer would be 50% by grace. He does for me. 50% by law. That is what I have to do in the relationship. Remember, law in this case is not bad. Law is the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount and Romans chapter 12 through 15, the do's and don'ts of covenant, whether you're thinking Old Covenant or New Covenant. So I think I'll not tell you uh, what the second question of covenant is because I don't want to influence your answer to the first question of covenant. That can be your extra credit question. So along with answering the first question of covenant, you can try to come up with what you think the second question of covenant is. And I'll, I'll give you a couple of lessons to think about that. For now, we're just going to stay with the first question of covenant because this is the question Paul is dealing with in Romans chapter 1 through 4. This is what we've been talking about. What makes a person acceptable to be in relationship with a holy God? What makes me righteous in his eyes? And when we can clearly understand this answer, it prepares us to go so much deeper into understanding and living out the gospel of Jesus Christ. So don't listen to the next lesson until you've written down your answer for this question. What makes me acceptable to God? What percentage is grace, God's action, and what percentage is law, my action? 
and we'll answer that fully in our next two lessons. If you would like the text of this lesson with some resource questions, or if you'd like to see overview charts that go along with our study of Romans, then check out the resource page at observetheword.com.